Audio Drama Insiders, the podcast giving you the lowdown on the most prolific and talented creators in the industry. And now, here are your hosts, Craig Hart and Trisha Rose. Well, hello there, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Audio Drama Insiders, affectionately known as ADI or Addy or Adai. We haven't, we'll, we'll figure that out and, and check back with you. But I'm here with my trusty co-host, Trisha Rose. Trisha, how are you today? Hi, I'm doing great. Yeah, so I spent the earlier part of the day trying to decide if designing Christmas wrapping paper would be financially profitable and decided that wasn't a good idea. But <laughs> audio drama is always a good idea. <laughs> yes, profitable or otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a subject for a whole nother show. <laughs> but no, I'm happy to be back on the episode and even happier to have our, our current guest, uh, Matthew P. Warner from uh, Audio Imagination 77 Productions. Thank you, Matthew, for joining us. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm a huge fan. I want to start out asking you if there is a story behind the name of your company. So I've always found that interesting. Honestly, no. Oh, no. I wanted so much to do it. <laughs> <laughs> No, what I meant to say was, yes, I was hiking the Himalayas and no. Um, I, uh, when I started this project, um, I just kind of thought to myself, all right, let's let's kind of come up with a crafty name. And I was like, well, it's a, all about audio. And then uh, something I've always been told since I was a child was I have a really good imagination and then I was born in 1977 to age myself. Okay, that's so audio imagination 77. Well, I want to talk about um, one of your more recent productions, Operator. But before we get that, get to that, um, there's a question I like to ask a lot of audio drama producers because it seems like the audio drama industry is starting to take off a bit more. So what do you, as an audio drama producer, see as the unique strengths of audio drama compared to other formats? I see it from two sides. I see it from the side of the creator, and I see it also from the side of the listener. And something that I've always found absolutely fascinating about audio dramas, um, and I've been listening to old-time radio since I was eight years old, so it's kind of been in my life almost forever. But uh, the fact that as the creator, we get to create these worlds for our audience to enjoy. And we have the power of creating the world and the story and the characters and the scenario. But then on the listener's side, I love the fact that as a listener, we get to decide what everything looks like and who is talking to us as the listener. So it's almost like a partnership, whereas we get to create and then the listener gets to kind of decide. So that's what I think is super special about uh, audio plays because not anyone who listens to them, chances are, are going to see them or hear them the same way as the next person. And I think that's super special. Whereas a movie or television, it's all done for us. Right. Yeah. If you see something different, completely different in a, like a television show, you might actually be a psycho. <laughs> right. <laughs> that wasn't in there at all, sir. It's yeah. Like, it absolutely was. <laughs> So, but turning to uh, to your mo most recent production, which was great, by the way. Thank you. Um, Operator. This provides a fascinating twist on the classic War of the World story. 
uh, tells it from the perspective of telephone operators. What inspired you to take this unique approach? Uh, back in 2021, when I finished A Gift, I think I, I was like, I don't know if I can do anything more creative than that. And I thought I kind of peaked out. And then I had remembered seeing this documentary about five years earlier, um, which uh, was, I think it was done back in 1988. It was an AT&T special mm. um, about that night from the, and they had four telephone operators from different States uh, on talking about that night. And I remember when I first saw it thinking, how come no one has ever done a story a based around the war of the worlds, or at least that I know of, because a lot of companies redo it, but not make up a story around the incident. And then the other thing was, if you think about these telephone operators were kind of the front line, they were the kind of the heroes of that night, keeping people calm, because I think a huge misconception is, is that everyone assumes that a telephone operator just connected person A to person B, but that was it was such a bigger job than that. It was giving them information if required. It was sometimes it would be just giving them the time of day and w the weather and th this, they were kind of pretty much the internet of the day. And so it was their job to keep people calm and try and inform them as much as possible. And I thought, how come nothing has ever been done around these amazing heroes? And also to think about 1938 and the fact that it was women because they were not, you know, really regarded on a very high, high level back then. It was mostly the men were the dominant and this and that. And here these women took control of the situation. And so I thought, I, I feel that based on this little six minute interview, and they didn't really give too much away, just talking a little bit about some of the calls, which I ended up kind of loosely basing all of my phone calls on stuff they were saying, I just thought it was time to tell kind of a an original story from their perspective. Yeah, that's really interesting. So a couple things about that. First of all, it really <clears throat> brings home the fact that we're, whether you're writing books or on audio plays or being creative in certain endeavors, people always ask, where where do you get your ideas? Uh, and I think this is an illustration of you get them from anywhere and everywhere. You just have to remain open when that moment comes, when that idea presents itself to grab it <laughs> and go with it as you did. Absolutely. Um, and the second thing is, and you're, an, you're a longtime audio drama or uh, old time radio fan, so maybe you can refresh my memory, but I'm thinking, <laughs> like talking about um, telephone operators back when they had party lines. And there was some show that had a running gag about a, a party line telephone operator who, who was always listening in <laughs> to other people's phone calls. And <laughs> I, my memory is failing. I don't remember what it was, but. I always got a kick out of that. And um, I remember like when my first phone growing up, I remember there being like a, a party line. Yes, I remember that too. And you had to wait until the neighbor got off the line. <laughs> Just so annoying. Yeah, they had a number. They seemed to have a number for everything back there. Yeah, oh, it was ridiculous. Um, so how do you go about crafting or how did you go about crafting the sound design and production production techniques uh, to bring this particular story to life for listeners? So were there any particular creative challenges, for example, that you had to overcome for this? Uh, yeah, that's a great question because um, I did not do a play in 
2022 just because I spent almost eight months doing the research on switchboards, how it worked. Also, even the play itself, listening to it and trying to compare it to time uh, timeline wise with its competitor, which was the Chase and Sanborn hour to make sure that everything lined up properly. But all the footage that I'd ever seen of a telephone or I'm sorry, a switchboard, um, it was just a light that would blink, but there was no sound that it would make. And so I realized because everything was silent or there was a narrator over it. So I was like, I have to create this sound, which is why I came up with the buzzer. Um, and and so that was the biggest, like, how do you also imagining all the sounds is like when you see the footage, like there's several people in a row. So there's going to be chattered. There's going to be cords pulling. There's going to be the sound of the cords plugging in, plugging out, sliding back down. There's, But the hard part is, is to emulate how busy the switchboard was, um, considering it was just lights. That's why I had to come up with the idea of making a creating a buzzer. Right. And then making it not annoying. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's really fascinating. So Operator unfolds over the course of a single night at the switchboard. And I can imagine that providing a lot of challenges to uh, pacing, tension, and and storytelling. How did you maintain that suspense in in that restricted structure? What I tried to do is... um, Again, go, uh, listening to I probably listened to the War of the Worlds uh, three dozen times and made notes with a time frame about how it was preg- progressing from the first initial broadcast to the second to the third. But I was also very aware that there's not a lot of scene changes in this play because it all takes place on one night in one setting from one point of view. Of course, it was like, how do I actually get her answering calls? Well, then that's why I have Mrs. Uh, Taylor uh, talking about how there's been a lot of calls that evening and they had to switch her off of practice mode to, you know, actual work mode. And then she never got a chance to switch her back. So she starts taking the calls and then it starts off as this very slow progression that goes along with the timeline of the War of the Worlds, because from their point of view, there's an announcement of gaseous explosions, but then it goes back to music. So she gets a strange call and then she gets a couple regular calls, but then the next broadcast starts talking about something landing at Grover's mill. So she starts getting calls about that. So it's just following the timeline of the war of the world's program. And then of course, when sometimes there would be enough, uh, too much space between the musical interludes going on in the War of the Worlds. So then I would bring in another character and have them start discussing it and then one farther down the switchboard. And so it it just was a very gradual progression that followed along with the timeline of uh, the broadcast. So not the easiest thing. And it definitely required several rewrites because I would read it as I was listening to the War of the Worlds and be like, nope, that doesn't line up. And so I'd have to keep starting over. That's cool. So what kind of research did you do into the technology and the work of telephone operators? I mean, I know you mentioned uh, there was a documentary, and it's a specific era, the 1930s. So in order to authentically capture that time period, what other research did you do in preparation for it? Uh, Mostly learning about how the switchboard worked. Um, We here in... uh... Washington actually, as strange as it sounds, has 
two telephone museums. Ah, um, one, one two hours north and one an hour uh, south. So I actually went. And, and the funny thing is, is they're only open <laughs> one day a week for a grand total of three hours. So I had to pretty much plan it. Um, and it's, of course, they're only open while I'm working. Naturally. So I would have to take my lunch early and drive over and see, uh, and I would meet with the curator of the museum and he would explain. I was like, as he started ta- taking me through the history of the telephone, I was like, I'm going to stop you right there, buddy. I, I really just am curious about the late thirties. So if you could take me directly to that, I'm on a time crunch and I still want to eat something on my way back. <laughs> so he would take me to the switchboard and he would show me and explain it. And that's how I knew that there, they didn't really make n- noises. It would just be a light that would blink, which was why I had to create that sound because obviously an audience can't hear a light blinking so had to kind of come up that way but that was the biggest thing and just studying the different sounds from the rotary phones to how they sound because it's actually quite interesting how lifting a handset on a phone from the 30s sounds different from one from the 40s or 50s or 60s because they got they were heavier the older they were and lighter the younger they were so as time progresses, the phones would get light, lighter. So I actually went to uh, several antique stores uh, here in the area and kept looking for phones. And my wife would be like, what about this one? And I'd lift it up and I was like, nope, not, not heavy enough. And I'd go to the next one. So that was a fun car ride home. That's cool. <laughs> and I forget, I was going to buy a Nokia, then tie a brick to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I have a little bit of a personal connection to the War of the Worlds event. Um, my great grandfather was napping in his chair in October of 1938 and had the radio on. And when he woke up, it was in the middle of, you know, these news broadcasts and, you know, got a little, got a little nervous about the state of the world. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah so but eventually i he figured it out so <laughs> but it's interesting to have that connection and then and then hear hear the story about the war of the worlds told from a totally different perspective so yeah i appreciate that absolutely I, thank you and i love that story and and that's the other part of it as i was doing all this research i i discovered and I, at first I almost slapped myself across the face for not knowing this, but because um, as long as I've listened to this show, but there's a, a city not even an hour away from where I live in Washington called Concrete. And this show literally put Concrete on the map because up until this event happened, nobody even knew this this uh, city existed. But then as as fate would happen, or have it, and and I touched on it in the play when I introduced the character Richard, is at the moment where the spaceships are being reported landing across the country, um, there was a thunderstorm that hit a tree branch and took out the city's power and their telephone lines. So so they all thought that they were being attacked and everyone went running to the streets, screaming <laughs> out that they were being invaded and people are driving through towns like, what the heck is happening here? And then people were jumping into the back of people's trucks and they're like, try, you know, and driving them out of town. And, and then they spent weeks afterwards, either being ridiculed in other news uh, 
papers or else they were printing apologetic uh, articles like, yep, we knew we didn't know we're idiots. <laughs> so, so that was fascinating to hear about and learn about. Well, it's so funny because correct me if, if I'm wrong, Matthew, you've done a lot more research on this than I have, but it seems uh, as if my memory serves that a lot of people first learn about that when they turn from War of the Worlds or when they to World War of the Worlds from a different pro. I think you mentioned the Chase and Sanborn hour, like when the musical number came on or something like that. Correct. Um, but what would even be even more startling is if in Trisha's great grandfather's case, if you woke up from a nap <laughs> yeah. and heard this, that would be even worse. <laughs> like you're kind of disoriented anyway, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially if when he woke up, it was the scene where they first attack the farmers and you, all you hear is screaming and then everything <laughs> yeah cuts off. I was like, what a great way to wake up. That, that's interesting because my great grandfather was a farmer. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, that'd be crazy. I mean, I wake up from a nap and I don't even know what time of day it is. I can't imagine how I would have re re reacted if I woke up and heard that coming over the news. Oh, I, I can't either. But but yeah, to, to comment on what you said, uh, that is correct. They and, and this is where I one of the things I find most fascinating about it is what Orson Welles actual like how structured this whole event was, because I read somewhere that he had been studying the Chase and Sanborn show for weeks because they were literally the number one show on the air at the time. And they were like something like number 40 or, and they're about to get canceled. Mm. So they had someone timing when all the musical interludes would happen. Cause back then it was common that people would change the station. Cause there was like, Oh, I want to see what else is on. And so it, and, and this was one of the first things I started timing. I actually would have two devices with uh, one uh, AirPod from each device in, and I'd have the Chase and Sandboard show playing and the War of the Worlds turned off. And then right when it got to the interludes, I would pause, I would lower the volume on one, I'd raise it, and I was like, nope, they're not lining up. And then I'd go back to it, and then there's a second interlude, and then I went up there, I'm like, ah, now they're reporting the gaseous oh. explosions. So it really did. So that's why I'm like, I really truly believe they timed this and planned this from the beginning, even though... <laughs> right afterwards he's like i didn't know but nah i think you knew well i know and you've got they've got that that newspaper photo of him with his famous baby yeah. face looking so innocent yeah. like i had no idea <laughs> come yeah. on you're too smart not to have known sir <laughs> and there's no question there's no question he wasn't a genius I, and i don't i recently posted on um one of the uh audio drama groups um the interview the day after the broadcast where he's surrounded by newspaper people mm. and they're asking him all these questions and he plays it off so calm and cool <laughs> and innocent. And you're just like, you psycho, you knew what you were doing. <laughs> so funny. So funny. It's almost, it's almost like sculptural audio drama. I'm, maybe that's a, a weird concept, but I mean, he really sculptured it to yeah. fit a certain context mm. yeah and he even claimed that that it wasn't the first time this uh this form of radio play had been done because everything was done the original script was not uh as a, a series of radio uh broadcasts it was an actual typical audio play script and i guess the night before or two nights before he decided to, to switch it up because the first 35 minutes are pretty much bulletins. And then after they finally decide to announce that it's a play, then the rest of the play is your typical average 
old time radio production where there's now narration and, you know, music. And I mean, it was perfectly timed. And up until that point, to me, it's super intense. So after operator, what's next for you? Um, Do you have plans for more audio dramas in the future? Please say yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Actually, I'm currently, I I shouldn't, my, my wife's in the next room and I think she'd kill me if I, if I, she knew I was going to do another play right away, but uh, she likes me to take breaks in between. Um, but I am currently uh, working on uh, an audio play based on the urban legend, The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs. Ooh. It's the tale where the babysitter is obviously watching kids and she's receiving phone calls. But the thing is, uh, after doing some my research on that, there's so many different endings. So I'm trying to figure out the best way to end it because... I've always thought that was one of the creepiest stories uh, I've ever heard as as a kid. And then there's been several movies made on it. But uh, right now the working title is The Sitter. And I'm just just beginning to start uh, writing it as we speak. I'm hoping to have it out by spring. Are there any lessons from Operator that you plan to carry forward into your next project? No, um, only because, well, actually, well, uh, production, I mean, story-wise, no. Uh, Production-wise, definitely, because every play I've done so far, I've done it for 100% free. Like, everything from the acting has always been free, and the the biggest issue has been the uh, software I've been using, which has been Audacity, which is a great uh, software for really small things. But as I learned from this, last uh production hence operator um it actually crashed on me three times Mm. and i actually lost the entire play three times oh no and had to start from scratch um and i because i had gotten to i'd say uh hour because it's an hour and 28 minutes and i got into an hour and 12 minutes and then when i went to save it it would not allow me to save and so after many different tests and trying to get some outside help which uh i have to give a major shout out to alicia hansen who spent hours trying to help Mm. walk me through it and give me suggestions um but at the end of it it just kept crashing and so i had to start editing it in chunks and then piece the chunks together because at least I knew if I had a successful finished chunk, I was like, and we're done moving on. And then I do the next <laughs> chunk. I'm like done moving on. But, uh, but I never, I can say at the same time, I never did it less than because I was getting sick of it. Like meaning like, oh, well, that takes fine. We'll just move on to that. I literally, right. uh, and on the flip side is, you know how audacity shows you like a wave format. I was actually able to start recognizing the wave of each take I'd used. <laughs> so I was like, yep, there's right. that one. There's that one. <laughs> um, so I think for wow. my next one, I'm actually going to finally invest in some software that uh, does not have that issue. <laughs> All right, Matthew, this has been so great. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, giving some behind-the-scenes stuff, some of your takes on the, your philosophy of audio drama. It's always interesting to talk to, to people about that. So uh, thanks so much. This was great. Great conversation. Well, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you guys asking me to do this. Like I said, like I find your guys' podcast super amusing. I always crack up at least three times when I'm listening to it. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, it's, it's funny. And, and Craig, honestly, I think, uh, I think you're an incredible writer. So for you to, oh, for you. you to give me the credit that, um, that you have, I greatly appreciate it. And, and the support, uh, cause I know we constantly are 
commenting on each other's stuff on social media and stuff. So it's good to have, it's good to have like a, this little group that kind of supports each other and stuff. And, and Trisha, now that I know who you've played on Titanic wave, I can say with full confidence, you are an incredible actress. (laughs) 